In order to support our show, we need the help of some great advertisers. And we want to make sure those advertisers are ones you'll actually want to hear about. But we need to learn a little more about you to make that possible. So go to podsurvey.com slash artofman and take a quick anonymous survey that will help us get to know you better. That way, we can bring on advertisers you won't want to skip. Once you've completed the quick survey, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Terms and conditions apply. Again, that's podsurvey.com slash artofman, A-R-T-O-F-M-A-N, podsurvey.com slash artofman. Thanks for your help. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. So whether you're a parent, a manager, or a mentor, we all have to coach people at some point in our life. But how do you coach in a way that makes the recipient receptive to your feedback, but doesn't take up too much of your time and energy? Well, my guest today has spent his career coaching managers on how to be better leaders at work, and he's distilled his knowledge on how to coach effectively in his latest book. His name is Michael Bungai Stanger, and his book is The Coaching Habit. And today on the show, Michael and I discuss how effective coaching requires you to talk less and ask more questions. And then Michael walks us through the exact questions you should ask when coaching someone that will guide them to the answer they need to make their needed improvement. This works across domains, whether you're a parent, a business, even if you're a sports coach, this stuff will work. A lot of actionable advice. Make sure you check out the show notes at aom.is slash coaching habit after the show's over, where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Michael Bungay Stanier, welcome to the show. It is very good to be here. Thanks for having me, Brett. Um, so you've written several books. Your latest book is called The Coaching Habit, and it's all about providing coaching in uh, in a work setting, but I, I think it could apply in other ways too in your personal life or if you're a coach of a sports team. But let's focus on the business aspect because I think people who are listening, they're either a manager or they're a leader of some sort of their job where they have to provide coaching or training to their employees. Sure. Um, and you highlight research in the in your book that shows that leaders and managers who, who regularly take part in coaching create a markedly positive impact on the company's performance and profitability. Yet at the same time, uh, most leaders and managers don't make time for coaching. So why why is there that disconnect there? Like they know it's good, but they don't exactly. Do so you've seen that research that says most people have found that if you do exercise, you're markedly better in your life, and yet <laughs> if you eat well you have a markedly improved life, and yet. So partly we're just dealing with that that human nature piece, which is around we have habits, it's hard to shift out of habits, even when we know we're good. I mean, one of the most telling pieces of research I saw about just how hard it is to shift out of old ways of behaving. Uh, I think I read this in the Fast Company magazine some years ago. Look, people with chronic, uh, serious heart disease, not chronic, actually critical heart disease, and they have this kind of operation that effectively saves their lives. And the doctor says, look, operation, it, it stopped you dying immediately, but it's not going to stop you dying unless you actually change the way you live your life. And um, I think that the number was only one in eight was able to change their lifestyle so as to live a healthier life. And so, I mean, this is literally a matter of life and death, and people find it really hard to shift out of the way that they're working. So the first thing I'd say, Brett, is this, that, you know, you're right, that I, the person I had in mind when I wrote this was a busy manager, 
probably keen to do their job, trying to do their best, feeling a bit overwhelmed, feeling that their team isn't perhaps hitting their peak and maybe they're not hitting their peak. How do you help people be more coach-like? Um, but truthfully, this is the stuff in the book and the stuff we're going to talk about is just useful if you interact with other human beings. If you, if you deal with other human beings, this is going to help you. But why is it so hard to be more coach-like? And I'm, I'm trying to distinguish the difference between coach, being a coach, which you know lots of people just don't want to do, and being more coach-like, which could actually help pretty much everybody. And when I define this, it's pretty simple stuff. You know, I would say being more coach-like is simply how do you stay curious just a little bit longer? How do you rush to action and advice just a little bit slower? Because the truth of the matter is most of us are advice-giving maniacs. I mean, we love it. You know, it's like, I don't even know what the problem is, Brett, but I've already got some initial ideas about how you should be doing things differently. It's really just a deep habit in terms of the way we show up because honestly for most of our life we've been praised and paid and promoted to have the answers to know what's going on to stay in control and that shift from curiosity which is you know if you have a few good questions and you have the way and means to make them into a, asking them into a habit that shift sounds simple but it's actually trickier than you think yeah, yeah. I like I mean, that's, that. a, that's a long answer to your question, but does that give you a sense of what we're talking about? Yeah, it does. And I like the distinction between being a coach and being coach-like. I think when most people think being a coach, they think like this guy barking orders, um, right? Doing this, but coach-like is more of a mindset where you're looking at people where exactly. they are and trying to help them find answers or solutions themselves. Yeah, I mean, working wait, with wait. them. Well, what I love is that when you say people think, you know, be coach, be a coach, they go to two different paths. One is the classic sports coach, you know, with the whistle, drop and give me 20, sort of shouting orders. The other is kind of vanishing into the kind of Californian hippie therapy, incest. <laughs> life coach. Pastel colored life coaching stuff. And honestly, people can look at both of those options and go, I am not the least bit interested in either of those two stereotypes. Because, you know, obviously the truth is there are plenty of sports coaches that are fantastic. There are plenty of life coaches that are fantastic. But it is a distinction to say, look, just forget being a coach. Just be more coach-like. Just stay curious just a little bit longer. Even if there's coaching or mentor mentorship programs in place at, a, at an office, most employees report that it's not very good. <laughs> yeah. They'd rather, like, not have it. Um, so what's wrong with the way, the way most companies or managers go about coaching? Yeah, it's, it's a bit of a dilemma. I mean, the, the research pointed out that I think it's close to 75% of managers said that they had some form of training. Now, who knows what that means? It could be, you know, he's had to be an active listener. Here's, here's my theory on coaching, whatever it might be. But it really didn't seem to translate into impact in the workplace. Um, in fact, in that study, 10% of people said that the coaching was actually having a negative effect on their impact and on their enthusiasm for the job. And I was just like, man, that must be, that must be a tough conversation to be part of. You know, come into my office, Brett, because my plan is to demotivate you by coaching you some. Um, so wh why doesn't it work? Well, I think part of it is potentially a way that people are taught coaching. And, you know, I, I'm, I have a bias in saying this because, you know, my company, Box of Crayons, we make our money by training people to be more coach-like. So 
you know, I, I have a, <laughs> I have a biased opinion about why coach training doesn't work. Um, but often there's not a great deal of translation from theory and models and abstractness to practical tools. And I think that's probably one of the biggest gaps, which is people just find it hard to, to move from the classroom and go back into their day-to-day work to be more coach-like. Um, and I just think that you know, in many organizations, what coaching is set up to be is an occasional intervention. Like, okay, Brett, it's the, it's the first of the month, first Monday of the month, come into my office, we're going to have our coaching session. And honestly, <laughs> you know, your heart drops when you hear that. You're like, oh, God, okay, so what's this going to be about this time? And if you're the manager, if you're on the other side of the table, your heart drops, which is like, God, oh, you know, I'm doing a fine job at managing them but and working with them and supporting them and encouraging them, but apparently I have to coach them, whatever that means. And so you have this kind of awkward monthly conversation and both of you are delighted when it's finished and both of you are delighted that it's a month until you have to go through that a second time. So I think that's the other key thing, which is for us, coaching isn't about the occasional event. It's about understanding that every interaction can be a bit more coach-like. So whether I'm having a meeting with you, whether I'm just bumping into you in the corridor, whether I'm managing by walking about, whether we're even trading emails, I can actually bring a kind of coaching mentality, being more coach-like into that. And in doing so, kind of strip back some of that kind of anxiety and formality that sometimes comes with coaching. You know, the metaphor that we like to talk about is saying, look, what we're after is drip irrigation, not the occasional flash flood. And that's really the heart of it. And I think the fact that coaching can feel like the occasional flash flood in many organizations is part of where it goes wrong. Right. So that, hence the the name of your book, The Coaching Habit. Like coaching for you isn't just a one-time event. It is something you do on a continual basis. You got it. I mean, the first chapter of the book is actually all about the science of habit building. Because, and you know, honestly, whether you're interested in coaching or not, if you're interested in living a better life, you got to know how habits work because habits are the building blocks of behavior change. So, you know, if not the coaching habit book, you know, Charles Duhigg's book called The Power of Habit. If not Duhigg, go to BJ Fogg's website, which is tinyhabits.com, and there's a ton of great resources there. If not BJ Fogg, go to Leo Babauter and Zen Habits and look up stuff there about building new habits. If not Leo Babauta, then Gretchen Rubin. There's a lot of people out there who've written some smart stuff about uh, habit building. And it's really useful if you're looking to live a life which has more impact and more meaning to actually understand how the science of habits work. All right. So and so basically the coaching habit is developed like any other habit. You just make small changes on a regular right. basis. And the, the change is going to come slowly, but it will come as you keep digging at it. Right. I mean... Yeah, it's one of those pernicious things that's out there in the world about, you know, how to build a habit, which is like, just do it for 21 days and you've got a habit. And, you know, sad to say that somebody just made that up. <laughs> and now and now it's out there on the internet and on the front of magazines and stuff. Um, it takes longer than that typically to build a habit. Um, but, you know, there's actually not a set number of days. It depends on the habit. It depends on the person. It depends on the context. Also, all those things play a big role. But yeah, the way you do habit is repeated acts. That's how you build it. You know, in the brain, 
you know, the, the, the saying in neuroscience is what fires together, wires together. And what they're talking about is the kind of links between the different neural, in the, the creating new neural pathways in your brain. And the more you walk a certain pathway, the more you repeat a, a behavior, the more that connection in your brain strengthens. And the more that happens, the more likely it is to become a habit. And in the process, you you change, your your character changes, your, I wouldn't say your yeah. personality changes, but like, yeah, there's something about your character that changes. That's a great, I mean, that's a, that's a really interesting, elusive question, which is, you know, what are we? <laughs> As human beings, what are we? And, you know, are we a collection of our behaviors? Well, you know, the, the, the proof of the pudding is in what we do often. You know, you ask people what they stand for in this world, and they can give you an answer. Or you can look at how they show up in the world, and you can figure out what matters to them, what's important to them, what their values are. And you, you can make the you can have the conversation about what matters to me. But really, it's like, how are you living your life? What does that tell you about who you are as a man, as a woman, who are you in this world? What does that tell you about what you stand for? And uh, there's often a pretty big gap between how we see ourselves and what we actually end up doing. Right. It's very Aristotelian. Aristotle thought you it, know, we are our actions. Right. We are what we repeatedly do. Right. Yeah. So let's, let's get into the specifics of how to develop this coaching habit. Um, Got it. So the whole, just starting a quote unquote coaching conversation right. can be awkward. Because I mean, basically you're insinuating to the person, <laughs> right. hey, look, you're right. not very good at this. And right. you need some help. And a lot of folks, I mean, they can resent that. It's natural. Of course. <laughs> You're a bit crappy. Let me intervene. Right. right. Who, who, who loves that conversation? Yeah. So, Not many people. So how can you start off a coaching conversation that's both tactful and will lead to a productive conversation? Well, the first thing I want to do is just reframe your question a little bit, because I don't think a coaching conversation, particularly the way we think about it as a kind of just a, a daily way of showing up a mindset means that you're implying that somebody's not very good or somebody's failing or somebody's wandered off the path, whatever it might be. Really what you're doing is you're saying, my goal is to help this person move towards fulfilling and expressing their full potential. So how do I do that? And so much around helping them unlock what's already there helping them, and this is the quote from one of the kind of real influences in the world of coaching, a guy who said John Whitmore. John Whitmore says, you're helping people to learn rather than teaching them. And that's really powerful. Um, because what that gives you as the distinction is it's like, okay, if I want this, if my job as a, as a manager, as a leader, as a parent, as a teacher, as a friend, as a human being, if my job is to help those around me get to the best version of themselves, how do I do that? And often it's about how can you ask the question that helps them have their own aha moment that helps them kind of step up and become the better version of themselves. So all of that just to say, it's not about necessarily the person somehow screwed up or going wrong or, you know, they're just not very good. It's more about, it's more a self-management tool to say, how do you slow down your desire to tell them what to do? How do you, how do you help them get going on this? And again, another long answer to your question. If, if anybody's forgotten the question because it was so long ago, it's like, how do you get going on this conversation? And you're right, in the book, we, we talk about seven essential questions. 
And the very first question of the seven is the kickstart question, because we say it's a great way to start lots of different conversations. And the question is this, what's on your mind? And the reason why that question can be powerful is that it is open. You know, it's an invitation to the other person to kind of talk about what's there. But it's not, so you're giving them autonomy and you're giving them status and you're giving them stuff that neuroscience proves keeps people more engaged and more honest in this conversation. But you're not saying to them, so just tell me anything you want. You're actually saying, tell me the thing that's exciting you or or worrying you or kind of consuming you at the moment. Let's go there. Let's talk about something real. Because in the context of organizational life, we say this, if you can't coach in 10 minutes or less, you do not have time to coach. And what that means is you have to get into the real conversation fast. And that kickstart question, what's on your mind, is a really powerful way to do just that. So would you say like, I mean, what's on your mind is, is pretty open. I mean, they could just say, well, I got this going on at home. Blah, blah. I, mean, yep. I mean, would you, could you just kind of funnel them in the direction? Like what's on your mind about X project or yeah. is that, is that something you could do to sort of guide the conversation? Cause I, I can see people who were asked what's on your mind. They just vomit out right. a whole bunch of stuff. That's hard to suss out. Yeah, that's true. So, um, I think often if you're meeting somebody, the context often arrives with it. You know, somebody comes into your meeting. I mean, I had a call the other day with somebody I'd never met before, and she's like, she just said in her email, I just want to talk about this book I'm writing. Um, I'm having some difficulty with it. Can we have a quick chat? And I was like, sure. I don't know who you are, but let's have a quick chat about it. And so she calls me up. We do two minutes small talk. Hey, we know each other through Laurel. Isn't she awesome? She is awesome. Um, I tell her I've read her previous book. It was awesome. So it's lots of nice little kind of connection. But then I'm like, okay, so you're talking about your current book. So what's on your mind? Um, And even though she told me some of the stuff that was going on for her, um, I didn't presume that that was it. I didn't presume that that's what she wanted to talk about. I opened the floor to her and said, "What's what's on your mind? And that was what got us from the surface into a deeper conversation almost immediately. Okay. Um, so it's, again, you're staying curious. You're not, you're not going in with any assumptions. When you, you got it. What's on your yeah. Mind. But then also in that section about asking what's on your mind, you uh, wrote about, you know, sometimes it can be useful to distinguish between projects, people, and patterns um, when you're going through that. I mean, so how, what do you mean by projects, people, and patterns? And how can yeah. that be useful? Yeah. So I, I created this as a little model just to help people go. These may be doorways into a conversation. Because let's take the, the friend I was talking to about the book. And I said, so what's on your mind? And she goes, blah, 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 blah. And what I'm holding in my head is going, look, there are three different things that she could hit upon. One is the project itself. And in this case, it's how do I write a damn book? (laughs) It's the thing that needs to be get done. It's the task. It's the collection of tasks. It's the outcome that you're working towards. And often if you ask what's on your mind, that's the easiest place for people to start because it's kind of external to them. It's like, here it is. Let me point you. Let me point you at the folder that is the source of my frustration and pain and annoyance right now. So that's useful. But in my head, I'm going, you know, there's often stuff about, the people involved as well. 
So I could ask this this friend, okay, so got that about the project and why that's frustrating, um, writing the book. How about the people? What's in your mind around what's going on with the people involved in this? And she could be going, oh, my editor, my designer, my roommate, my this, my that. All of that gets entangled, and that is pretty interesting as well. In fact, it often goes a little deeper because now we're talking about relationships. And then the third and final one, Brett, is about patterns, and it's about your own patterns of behavior that might be getting in the way. So if we wanted to go deeper into that conversation about, so, you know, in terms of your own patterns, what what's showing up here? She's like, oh, I've, I've had, I'm a lifetime procrastinator. Oh, I don't like confrontation. Oh, I avoid the, I avoid the hard, great work if I'm trying to do it. Who knows? I mean, I'm just making all this stuff up. So it's a way of potentially deepening or expanding the conversation just to make sure that you're getting into the real stuff. Okay. And then, does that, even does then, that work as a model for you? No, that, yeah, that's perfect. I love yeah. it. And, but even then, so you got this information. I think most people would be like, okay, thanks for telling me that. Here's what you need to do. Right. Um, but you say that that shouldn't be the next <laughs> exactly. thing that comes out of your mouth. Um, you should follow up with another question. What is that question? That's right. Well, you could follow up with any number of questions, but I think that one of the questions that can be really helpful for you is first of all, to do what Brett's beautifully articulated, which is to notice the surge within that says, you should tell this person what to do. Because <laughs> we all have it. It's a natural reaction. You're like, oh, man, well, now I understand what the real challenge, now I know what's going on for you. Okay, well, let me give you some advice. But the, the truth is you don't really know what's going on yet. You've heard the kind of the opening lines. But the key insight to remember is that the first challenge is almost never the real challenge. So... This is exactly what happened with this conversation with his author. I said, so what's on your mind? And she kind of went, blah, 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 blah. I was like, wow, there's a lot going on here. And then I asked this next question, the one question you're asking about, which we call the focus question. And the focus question is this. So what's the real challenge here for you? What's the real challenge here for you? And the way that question is written or spoken really does matter because I could have said, so what's the challenge here? And I would have got a, an answer. It would have been an okay answer, but coming kind of firing from the hip, this is what the challenge is. I could upgrade that question and say, what's the real challenge here? And can you see how that already makes people have to work a little bit harder to figure out what's really going on for them? What's the real challenge here? But actually, the way I, the final version of this question, what's the real challenge here? for you, adding for you is when the spotlight kind of swings from the, the challenge at hand to the person who's dealing with the challenge. And that's when the conversation can get a little, a little deeper, a little more personal, a little more profound. So that can be a great question to follow up. What's the real challenge here for you? Right. Because that t forces them to think about what, well, what can they do about, I mean, maybe they, I, I would start thinking like, what can I do about these problems. A lot of the stuff when you're writing a book, you really don't have much control over. Right. But when you think about, okay, what's the challenge for me? That kind of puts things back in the locus of your control. Right. Exactly. And it also helps you move away from thinking about how do I blame others? Because <laughs> it's like easy to go, okay, I'm just going to blame Brett now for an hour and a half. Um, 
to go, what's the real challenge here for you? Well, it's not about Brett or whoever else the other person is. It's actually about how do you deal with that person? So it does, just as you perfectly said, swing the locus of the, conver- the, the conversation back to the locus of control. What are you up against? Not what's going on over there, but what are you up against right now? What's the real challenge here for you? And now we can actually tackle something that's real and tangible. Right. And even then, after the person has begun to untangle what the real challenge is for them, um, you argue you should follow up with the question, <laughs> and what else? Like, Right. Because again, now they've told you what the real challenge is. Now, the advice monster within that desperate need to tell people what to do. Now it's alive. <laughs> You're like, oh, look how awesome I was. I asked them what's on their mind. Then I asked them what's the real challenge here. Wow, now I know what the real challenge is. Wow, my advice is going to be fantastic. But actually, again, you probably haven't really heard what the real challenge is. You probably heard a version of it or their first guess or sometimes something completely different. So then you go, great, okay, I got that. What else is a real challenge? What else is a real challenge here for you? And then whatever the answer to that, you could follow it up again by going, okay, so what else? What else is a real challenge here for you? And then if you lean in one final time and go, okay, Brett, lot going on here. Now you see all of that. What's the real challenge here for you? I can promise you that almost nine times out of ten, the answer to that second question, what's the real challenge here for you? It's going to be different from their answer to the first time, what's the real challenge here for you? Different and deeper and more personal. And that has a double impact. The first impact is this. It tells you that if you were trying to solve the first problem, you'd be solving the wrong problem. Secondly, you need to know that your advice actually isn't nearly as good as you actually think it is. So not only are you solving the wrong problem, but you're trying to do so by offering up slightly useless advice. So this is not a great way to show up in the world, the person who solves the wrong problem with not very good advice. And just staying that little bit curious for a little bit longer just allows the real challenge to actually evolve and show up. Wedding season is coming up, and if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits start at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a long-time podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. All right, if you have a family, then you need to get term life insurance to protect them. It's one of the smartest financial decisions you can make, and the start of the new year is the perfect time to get it done so you can focus on whatever else the year has in store for you. Fabric by Gerber Life was designed by parents for parents to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. 
Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget with quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. There's no risk to apply. They have a 30-day money-back guarantee and you can cancel at any time. I remember when I was a new dad, I had a lot of thoughts going through my head. One of them was, how can I take care of my family when I'm gone, if something happens to me? Well, it's one of the first things I did. I got term life insurance, one of the best decisions I made. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash manliness. That's meetfabric.com slash manliness. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash manliness. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting our clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best, become your best with Masterclass. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors, and many of these instructors are former AOM podcast guests. You can learn negotiation from Chris Voss, leadership skills from Jocko Willink, how to master your habits with James Clear. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. So recently, I went through the Masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. A lot of useful information in there. Talked about the value of knowing a negotiation, how to use your body language and speech patterns to get your best out of a negotiation. Very well done. I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM. Masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. Yeah, I love that. It reminds me, I have a professor friend who says, you have to ask a question three times to get a good answer from somebody. And I reckon there's some truth in that. Yeah, and he'll do that with his students. <laughs> he won't say the same <laughs> thing over and over again, but he'll phrase it differently. And he's, he's, he says, like, every time I do that, the, first, this, the last answer I get is always better and always different from the first answer they gave. I'm just hoping you're not going to apply that to us in this this interview right now. Right, I'm going to do it right now. Weird. And what else? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Michael. Um, but I, I think it's interesting, too, that when you're asking these questions or when you're asking about the problems of what's on their mind, you're not asking why. Why is that a problem for you? You're asking what yeah. is a problem. So, I mean, why is it important to – I'm asking a why question. Um, yeah. So why should you stick to what questions and not do the why yeah. questions? How does that how does that give you different results? Yeah, well, you could you could ask me what's the trap in asking why questions. There you, yeah, there you go. So you're a pro at this. I'm a pro at it exactly. So I love that you brought this up because it's something I bang on about in the book a little bit. 
Um, and the first thing to say is there are times when the why question can be really powerful. Lots of people have heard of the the practice known as the five whys. You know, somebody goes, I want to do this. And you go, well, why? And they go, well, because of this. And you go, well, why? And then they go, well, okay, because of this. And they go, well, why? And it's a way of quite powerfully getting to kind of some deep-rooted motivation. Perfect in certain circumstances. But for most of us normal, normally in everyday interactions, everyday conversations, the why question can be a bit of a trap. And I think it's got two things about it that can lead people astray, make them less effective in their conversation. And the first is this, simply to say, it is really hard to ask the why question without it sounding slightly judgmental. You know, because why, why are you doing this so often comes across as, why the hell are you doing this? <laughs> yeah, and I do that with my, now, ta- my, my kids a lot. And when I do right. it, I kind of like, that was a dumb question to ask. <laughs> right. Well, you see what, what they're often, what you're actually asking people to do is often justify. And now they're defensive and now they're actually in the kind of lizard brain, amygdala, fight or flight thing. And you've kind of lost the good heart of the conversation. So that's the first reason. The second reason is more subtle. Um, and it's this, when you ask why, too often you're asking that not for your, not for the other person's sake, but for your sake, because here's what's going on in your head, kind of consciously or not. If I just find out more details about what's going on with this issue, I'll be able to tell them what to do. So the why question is about you gathering data rather than actually helping the other person explore what's really going on. And if you if you agree with the principle of the book, and part of, one of the principles of the book is become a lazy coach, you know, stop working so hard so you can let the other person find their own path, you realize that actually asking why just makes you work harder because you're trying to solve the problem for them. And actually you might want to shift out of that to say, what if I help you solve your own problem? So, I mean, what kind of other what questions could you ask to help that process along? So, we you know, we, we've asked, what's on your mind? Um, yeah. What's the real challenge for you? What else? I mean, are there yeah. other what questions that could be helpful along this process? Like, questions, well, like what questions yeah. you would ask instead of saying, asking why? Yeah. So, I would, I would ask questions like, um, so what's at the heart of that? Um, what's your best guess at why you took that path? Um, what was your thinking that made you react like that? Um, and you know, they're, they're just subtle variations on that. But I do think that the, by asking them, what was your, what was your thinking in working through that path? It's actually valuable for the other person to figure out their thinking. So that's actually in service of the other person. Right. I think it's better than Uh, why, because why will kind of muddle things up and what forces the person to get kind of analytical right. about their thinking process. Right. Yeah, I like so, that So, you know, with everything I say on this podcast and in the book, none of it is a definitive hard and fast thou, thou shalt not, because you can always find a reason when, you know, asking why, for instance, might be a really smart thing to do. But um, as a principle, I certainly have gone, look, the simpler I can make 
this whole idea of coaching the better. You know, that's the goal of the book. The book was to go, what's the shortest book I could write that would still be useful? What's the simplest way I can frame coaching that would be useful? You know, it boils down to here's a habit, here's an understanding of a habit and a habit formula. Here's seven great questions that will take you solidly down the path nine times out of ten. And in doing that, you know, there's a quote from Einstein. He's like, things should be as simple as possible and no simpler. So what I'm trying to do is go, look, here's something else you might be able to eliminate from your regular conversation that will make it more powerful and less effortful. Um, so we've been trying to, we've been trying to stave off the, the advice monster as mm-hmm. much as we can by asking these questions, but is there any, is there ever a moment, uh, when you should step in and be like, here's what you need to do. Here's some advice, oh, straightforward yeah. advice. Yeah. Lot, lots of times. Um, you know, there's a, there's a, 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 an Harvard business review by a guy called Daniel Goleman. And Daniel Goleman is the, one of the kind of the guy who popularized emotional intelligence, and he wrote a book based on this article as well, which I can't quite remember the name of. It might be Primitive Leadership or something like that. Anyway, he says, look, there are six different styles of leadership. Um, there's a kind of pace-setting one. There's a democratic one. There's coaching. There's a few others as well. And great leaders actually know how to use all six styles at the appropriate time in the appropriate way because every style has its advantages and its disadvantages. Coaching happens to be the least utilized of those leadership skills, even though it has, you know, a range of great impacts, including on engagement and on the bottom line. But, you know, if the, if the building is burning down and Brett goes, oh, my God, Michael, the building's burning down, it's not useful for me to go, Brett. How are you feeling about the building burning down? That's, and what else? Yeah, and what else is burning? <laughs> exactly. It's like there's nothing useful about that at all. It is, and part of your job if you're in an organization is actually to bring your expertise and experience to the forefront and use it in a wise way. And that's why we define coaching not as uh, never give anybody advice. It is simply how do you stay curious just a little bit longer? How do you rush to action and advice just a little bit slower? So it's a really specific habit, you know, something that people can take away right away. You know, when somebody comes up to you and goes, hey, Michael, how do I, how do I do X? Here's my kind of habitual response. I'll go, look, I've got some, I've got some thoughts on how to do that, and I'm going to share them with you for sure. But before I tell you how I'd approach it, let me ask you, what, what are your first thoughts on how to take that on? And whatever they say, I'm going to nod my head and probably agree with them, and I'll go, I love it. What, what else could you do? And then what else could you do? And this is great. Is there anything else you could do? Fantastic. I don't know. Is there is there one other thing you could do potentially to approach this? And so now they've actually gone through the hard work of generating their own ideas and their own possibilities. But I may just go, so look, I love all of those ideas. Let me give you one or two that occur to me as you're saying this. You could also do this and you could also do that. So there you go. You've got like five or six or seven good ideas here. Um, which one do you like here? Which one, which one might you act on? You know, which one do you want to put into play? So use advice, but use it a little slower than you currently do. Because at the moment you over advise, you advise too quickly. And it means, as we said before, you're, you're so often serving up not very good advice to solve what's probably not the real problem. 
Right. And I also think just giving the advice or making someone work to figure out the problem themselves, they're more likely to act on it. Right. It's like, whose advice, whose idea am I likely to follow? The idea that my boss told me to do or the idea I came up for by myself? Well, the actual answer is the idea you came up by yourself. Because if I came up with it by myself, I'm like, that's got to be a pretty good idea. I thought of it. <laughs> and if it's boss, you're like, that's awesome. I don't need to tell them that idea because they thought of it themselves. I get to tell them a few other things and add value that way. Yeah. And because I've noticed that in my own life, you know, I've had experiences where people will come to me and ask, they're like, hey, can I have coffee with you where I can ask you like how to start a blog? And I've done that in the past and before I would just kind of like do a dump, like here's everything I did, yada, yada, yada. And then I would follow up and be like, hey, so what's going on with it? And they haven't done anything. And I think there's two things going on there. Um, one is that they didn't have to work for it. Right. So they didn't were able to internalize that. And also the advice I <clears throat> gave probably wasn't very useful because when I started my website was back in 2008 and the whole landscape right. is completely different That's from true. what it is now. And so it's, I probably wasn't offering productive advice. That, that may be the case. I mean, there may be, um, you know, who knows? Because I've had I've had a thousand of those conversations as well, and you know, honestly, they probably had a similar result. Um, Sometimes people just don't want to act on on stuff. They're like talking to people about starting a blog is almost the same as actually starting a blog. And actually, now I've spoken to Brett, I realize how hard he works to make that <laughs> successful. Huh? Now I'm even less interested. But it's interesting if they're like, so, you know, if they come to you and go, "How do you start a blog?" and rather than launching into advice you go well let me ask you uh what's your objectives for the blog and how committed are you to to creating a blog and what's the real challenge here for you do you think in in, in creating this blog and what else is a challenge for you and what else is, and so what's the real challenge at the heart of of getting going on a blog for you okay now you see the real challenge you know what are your own ideas about how to actually tackle that and take that on great so I love what you're thinking. Let me give you one or two pieces of ideas that I've learned from starting a blog that might help you with that particular challenge. And it's actually a faster conversation and it might be more to the point. Yeah. And so, I mean, these conversations can happen quickly. I mean, how long did the conversation that you had with the uh, lady about her book, how long did, how long did that take? Yeah. I'm going to say that the, the heart of it was uh, 10 minutes. I mean, it can't have been very long because I was sitting in an airport waiting to catch a plane. So I didn't have a whole lot of time for this. But you're able to get something productive for it. She's able to hone in on something. and Yeah. So we got to what I would say is the heart of her issue. And then I was able to say, you know what? Um, this isn't actually something that I'm that good at working on. I don't have that much information about it. But let me give you the name of one or two, or two people who be really great resources for you here. So I got to offer advice. But if we started where she st wanted to start, I'd have given her advice on something completely different. As it was, the, the conversation deepened and shifted, became a bit more personal. And, and we got to something that was really kind of the bigger block, the, the bigger issue she wanted to take on. And, you know, let's go to ending. Like, so we're not going to call these conversations. I'm going to call it conversations, se coaching sessions just for uh, yeah. a verbal placement. Shorthand. Yeah. yeah, shorthand. Um, but an important part of coaching is the follow-up, right? To ensure that, you know, what you've talked about or discussed with your person 
it's actually done. So how should, is there something you should, like a question you should ask or something you should say at the end of this to, to ensure there's some follow-up on what was discussed? Well, again, I'm going to, I'm going to say often follow-up is an important part of coaching, but not always. Um, so it depends a little on the relationship and the person and the, and what the context and what's going on. So for the woman I spoke to that I've been talking about as a kind of thread through the story, there's no follow-up. Um, I'm at the end of that. I said, is there anything, any other thing else I can help you with? She's like, no, I've got what I need. I'm like, fantastic. Good luck. Bon voyage. And, you know, I sent her introductions to two people who I mentioned on the phone and then my work here was done. Part of the nuance here is, is this. So one of the core principles and in the book and in the programs we have is, you know, we say be lazy, which is really meant to be provocative because lots of people aren't lazy. The people who listen to podcasts like yours, Brett, aren't lazy people because they're keen, they're enthusiastic, they're trying to live better lives. But we often overwork that to the detriment of our own lives and to the detriment of those that we, we lead and we influence. And one of the challenges with saying my job is to hold you accountable is that I've now made it my job to check up on you. And sometimes that's great. Sometimes it turns into this weird policing, parental surveillance thing, which doesn't help anybody. It makes it kind of a burden to me and it makes it a, a burden to you as well. So one of the things that um, I'll often ask at the end of a conversation, I'll ask a couple of things. One is I'll often ask, what we call in the book, the learning question, where I get to go, hey, what was most useful and most valuable for you from this conversation? So what that does is it forces somebody to kind of extract the value, get the aha moment that they might otherwise miss. But the other thing I'll do is I'll go, so um, what else do you want from me, if anything? How else can I help, if at all? And sometimes I'll make a request and sometimes they'll say, I, you know, I've got what I need. And I'm like, that's fantastic. Um, if it's somebody with a more specific uh, kind of relationship with me, like somebody on my team, for instance, I'll still ask them, so what, do you, what else do you want from me, if anything? And um, after they've told me, I'll go, okay, great. So here's what I want from you. I'd like to see um, your first thoughts on this plan by Wednesday next week. So I'll set a kind of objective that I'm looking for. Don't take on the burden of I need to hold everybody else accountable because that can become a very heavy burden very quickly. Definitely. This my next question is related to that. Um, you know, the, what the, the sort of the the system you set up again. It's not sort of ironclad, but it's a great working system to to use and fall back on. It's easy and it can make coaching very easy. And it's so easy that I can see like you wanting to do it all the time, right? Right, and help as many people as you can. But again, that can be a burden, like you can overextend yourself. So how do you manage wanting to coach, wanting to help without overextending yourself where it's bad for you and bad for the people you're trying to coach? Yeah, it's another great, great question. Um, the first thing to say is often a coach-like approach can actually mean that you can manage more because you're not taking on everybody else's work for them. And one of the burdens lots of people have is I feel like I'm responsible for my work and other people's work as well. And that can be kind of quite crushing. And this frees you from that. So that's the first thing to say, which is sometimes you actually, you can work with a lighter touch 
but with greater clarity and greater kind of structure and systems in place. And then the other piece is going, um, you know, you get a yet another email going, Brett, you're awesome. I love your podcast. Uh, can you tell me how to set up a podcast, please? And you're torn because you're a nice guy. You want to serve the world. Part of you goes, yeah, I'll grab another coffee with you. Part of you goes, man, this is my ninth cup of coffee in the last three days. A, I'm over-caffeinated. B, I seem to be giving a lot. And other people seem to be taking a lot. And it doesn't seem to be nourishing me. Um, I'm making that up about you, Brett. But, you know, I've just no, put yeah, that out there. So. Sure, I, I've been there, yeah. No. Yeah, so um, I am really influenced by um, a writer called Adam Grant. He wrote a book called Give and Take. It's, he's got a new book out called The Originals, which is good without quite having the same impact on me as that book Give and Take. And he says, look, there are there are actually three different ways you can show up in the world. You know, it's a model. All models are wrong. Some are useful. Um, he says, look, you can be a giver. You can be a taker. Or you can be a, gosh, I've forgotten the label. Basically, a re reciprocity. You scratch my back, I'll scratch your back. And here's what he found. He found that after doing a ton of research, because his stuff is all research-based, he found that in all sorts of different sectors and different roles and different jobs, the people who failed most spectacularly at those jobs were in the bottom 10, 20%, tended to be the givers because they tend to be the givers who had poor boundaries. So they would deplete themselves. They'd become overwhelmed. They would give um, without realizing the price that they were paying and they wouldn't be able to do their own work or get what they wanted. So actually it's like, you know, you kind of, you suffer as a giver. But then here's the twist. He also found that the people at the very top performers in those roles and in those sectors or wherever, they too were the givers. But it was a different type of giving. It's a giving that went, look, I will give as much as I can, but not in a way that will deplete me, overwhelm me, ruin me. I'll give in a way that uh, – or, or, or I, and not necessarily give in a way that goes, I'm only giving this because I'm pretty sure that you're going to give me something back in the next day or week or whatever. It's giving kind of in that I'm putting out good stuff out to the universe. I'm looking after myself. And I'm making sure that I take what I need and I look after myself as well. And all of this is a long, long answer to your question about how do you not become overwhelmed if you're wanting to coach and support people. And the answer is you've got to figure out what you want and what that means in terms of what your boundaries are, what you can and can't do. And it comes down to actually, again, one of the questions we mentioned in the book, we call it the strategic question, which is what are you going to say no to? So you can truly say yes to the stuff that you care most about. Because as an example, and again, made up example, but we're just kind of combining fiction with fact. Every time you go out and have a coffee with somebody and spend an hour talking to them about a blog or a podcast is an hour you don't get to do your great work in this world. And sure, you serve somebody and you help somebody out in that coffee. But is that the best way for you to have the impact you want to have in the world? Is that the work that most lights you up? <clears throat> and the answer may be, it, yeah, it may, it may be, yes, that is. But for me anyway, what I discovered is at a certain point, I was feeling that wasn't. And actually the price I was paying for having coffee with somebody 
was that I wasn't getting to write my book or whatever it might be. Right. That's a tough question to figure to answer. What are you willing to it, say no to? Yeah, it is. It's a hard one. Well, hey, Michael, this has been a great conversation. Um, where can people find out more about the book and the rest of your work? Uh, I appreciate you saying that. Um, so, look, if you're interested in the book, uh, obviously it's available on Amazon and all those other places. Um, thecoachinghabit.com, so the name of the book, thecoachinghabit.com, it has information about the book and there's a ton of free resources, videos and downloads and reports and all st- stuff there. So regardless of whether you want to get the book or not, please do go to the website and kind of pillage it. Um, if you're kind enough to pick up a copy of the book and good enough to even read it, then my request, if I may be bold, is to say uh, a review on Amazon is always really appreciated. I've got a audacious goal to get to a thousand reviews on Amazon.com. And so if you if you had a chance to read it and are so inclined, a review there would be really appreciated. And if you're interested in the box of crayons kind of training programs, which we bring into large organizations typically, then uh, box of crayons, all one word, dot biz, B-I-Z or B-I-Z, depending on where you live in the world. <laughs> all right. Well, Michael, thanks so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. It has. Thanks for your help, Brian. My guest today was Michael Bungai Stanger, and his book is The Coaching Habits, available on Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can also find more information about Michael's work at boxofcrayons.biz. Also check out the show notes at aom.is slash coachinghabit, where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. Our show is edited by Creative Audio Lab here in Tulsa, Oklahoma. If you have any audio editing needs or audio production needs, check them out at creativeaudiolab.com. As always, we appreciate your continued support. Reviews on iTunes or Stitcher really helps us out. Really appreciate that. And until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly.